Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We could never have earned it. We could never have deserved it. We could never have done enough for what you've done for us. And we could never pay you back for your amazing grace. But I pray that you would enable us this morning as we come to your table, as we gather in the throne room of heaven for worship, that you would engender in our hearts a love for you that is so great, a passion for you that burns so deeply and so brightly that we would be able to live lives that are worthy of the gospel as we live into the reality that we have been born again into a living hope that all our sins are gone, that our chains have been broken, that you have removed our sin as far as east is from the west. In your perfect mercy and love, you have made us right with yourself and with each other, both for now and for eternity. By the blood of your son Jesus, by his body that was broken on a tree for us, you have made us whole. By his resurrection, you have given us hope. You have raised us to new life, into a whole new kind of existence, so that we could play our part in your good purposes for the world as we love our neighbors as ourselves, as we minister to one another and to those who are in need around us, as we work for justice, for healing, as we work for reconciliation as ambassadors of the reconciliation that you have given to us. God, I pray that you would help us to tell the world the good news of what you've done for us in Jesus as we evangelize, not out of obligation, but out of joy, out of the overflow of our hearts as we tell others about the truth and the goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ that changes everything. Lord, we come to you today, we approach boldly the throne of grace, asking that you would heal the sick. We have people who are sick in our congregation and in our families, and we pray that you would do what you alone as the great physician can do, that you would work miracles. You are a God of miracles. We believe that you still do miracles today, and we ask that you would just confound medical science with the way that you intervene in the lives of those who need it most. God, we pray that you would lift up the brokenhearted, lift up the lonely, lift up those who have walked away from the church only to find heartache and despair. Lord, we ask that you would call them back. So many in our church who have children who have walked away from the faith and who found nothing but despair. Lord, we pray that you would show them that you are still good, you are still on your throne, and you still offer life and hope and healing. Lord, we pray all these things as you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue to jump in uh, through Isaiah today as we walk through our text. And, you know, we've moved the announcements to the beginning of the service, as you may have noticed, to, you know, kind of not break the flow of, of worship. But uh, 
those three song sets, Aaron, after uh, playing 45 holes of golf this weekend, my legs, I'm not sure, I might need a stool up here to, to sit down on. Uh, I won't tell you who it was, but as our, as our golfing group gets older, uh, one uh, constituent uh, went to mark his ball on the green this weekend and he couldn't find a ball marker. So, of course, he always had Advil on him, so he used an Advil tablet to mark his ball where it was. But uh, I was so grateful to be a part of, I think it was the 28th annual uh, Donnie Sherman Memorial Golf Tournament, 16 guys here from the church. If anyone wants to go next year, I encourage you, you're all invited, you're all welcome to go. Uh, let us know if you want to be a part of it. Uh, this guy here can absolutely crush the ball. I was glad he was on my scramble team yesterday because uh, I couldn't put one in the fairway, but Aaron was playing great. But uh, it's wonderful to fellowship with God's people, isn't it? That's one of our purposes here. That's one reason why gathering is so important. Because when we gather in person, we experience the richness of the fellowship of God. And I was talking to someone recently about meals in the fellowship hall and how much I long to gather with you in fellowship meals. And who knows what this COVID thing is going to do? God does, but I don't. And we've, we've got uh, enough food and enough space for about 250 people on August 15th. For a dinner outside, we think that'll be as safe as it can be. It may be 112 degrees and super humid. I don't know. Dewey Dunn, you know, Louisiana guy, he's not going to care. But uh, if, if you want to be a part of that, please go online and register woodmontbaptist.com so we can get an accurate count because we, we want to have enough food for everybody. But we're going to celebrate all that God's done over the last 80 years in the life of this church, some really cool stories. And we're also going to look to the future about what God's going to do in the next 80 years of our church's future. On August 22nd, Evan and the Youth Praise Band, and I hope we're praying for Evan and those guys, that 30 of them going on that beach retreat today. It's just an incredible, uh, great group that's going. But uh, Evan and, and the Youth Praise Band are going to lead us in worship on August 22nd. So uh, it'll be neat to see the next generation and I don't know if you've had a chance to go and look in the library, but there's a, a board that our librarians and others have put together of new members, people who've joined our church over the last year, year and a half. And it's obvious, if you look at it, it skews pretty young. And I was looking at that thinking, this is the future of our church, these young families and, and young adults. So we're just so grateful to be a part of this family of faith where we have young and old and everything in between. Baby John Dean back there, he's the youngest one here, and I won't say who's the oldest one, but we have several in their 90s. Uh, you know, age is very relative. We talked about someone who was in their 80s, and I said, well, that's young around Woodmont, so that's, that's very uh, young and spry for, you know, your Woodmont. But I'm so grateful to be a part of this family of faith, and I hope you are too. It's August. Can you believe that? August 1st. The summer has just flown by. Uh, it's just going so quick. We're going to start a new emphasis for the month of uh, August, surprising strategies, how God's ways are infinitely better than our ways. What we're going to see in these texts in Isaiah, and we're almost there, guys. We're on, we're on the backside of Isaiah. We're going to finish in November, so hang in there. If you're struggling through Isaiah, it's, it's going to be a strong finish, I promise you. Uh, but we're going to talk in these texts about how we see things that are kind of subversive, that the ways of God aren't the ways that we would typically think, but yet they are infinitely better than the ways that we would think. 
They are infinitely more effective. They are infinitely uh, more uh, flourishing and lead to the thriving of all things in a way that is way above the ways that we would think. God's not like us. He doesn't think the same way we do, and that's a good thing. So let's keep that idea in our minds as we jump into our text for today, Isaiah 41 and 42. Before we do that, let me just give you a heads up. We're going to be talking about idols this morning, and we're going to see how the Lord confronts our attachment to idols in this passage. And you may hear that, and you may think to yourself, idols? I don't, I don't have any idols. That's something that other religions have, right? When I went to Australia, uh, I got to stay in the, the home of some young adults that were part of the church, uh, three siblings, the part of the church that we were working with there. And their parents had immigrated to Sydney from Hong Kong. And they, were, uh, they didn't speak much English. And they actually had a family shrine in the kitchen, like in a corner of the kitchen. I'd never seen something like it. And it was like a, a Buddhist shrine where they had several idols, uh, family household gods, as well as some other kind of uh, folk religion uh, gods that were incorporated. And I actually came into the kitchen one morning, and the dad was kneeling at this shrine, praying to the idols that were there. And that's what I always thought of as idols, these little statues or something. And I was like, I don't do that. I don't have any idols. I'm not an idolater, of course. But the reality is that we have idolaters here among us this morning, and I am one of them. I don't have any graven images. I don't have any statues that I pray to in my house, but I do constantly look to other things to give me meaning, to give me purpose, to give me identity, to give me provision, to, to give me a, a sense of what's going on in life other than the triune God. I look to things that aren't God to do those things for me. The problem is that our hearts run after all kinds of things that are not God in order to give us those things. They run after things that, that can provide for us maybe in the short term. And we also look to those things to not only give us stuff, but to save us actually. Our hearts are like that overly energetic dog that just can't wait to chase every car that might happen to pass by. Every good thing that comes by us, we're like, ooh, that looks good. Yeah, I got to have that. And we chase after those things that look good to us. And the catch here is that, you know, cars aren't bad things necessarily. We see a good job and we think, yeah, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to go after a career. We dream of a happy family. We all want to experience that, that taste of heaven that is the joy and pleasure of having a healthy and happy family. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're, those are good, God-given, sacred maybe even things. But when we confuse good things with ultimate things, we are in danger of idolatry. We actually become idolaters. When we look to any of those things, those good things, to fill us up, to give us our sense of who we are, to be the reason that we get out of bed in the morning, we will ultimately be let down. 
you know, Tim Keller has a great little book called Counterfeit Gods. If you want to know more about idols, I recommend that book to you. It's about how our idols all over-promise and under-deliver. You know, we, what do you say to someone that you first meet? Your work defines you because we often say, hi, I'm Nathan, I'm a pastor at Woodmont Baptist Church, right? You talk about your identity as what you do vocationally. Uh, we look to our work to provide for us and for our families. I was talking with a friend recently who was confessing that he was overly worried about losing his job. And he's a strong believer, so he actually said, I, I know, he, he's correcting himself, the Spirit was telling him in his heart, he said, I know all I've got to do is trust that the Lord will take care of us no matter what. My job is not my source of life. God is. It's a, a hard distinction to make. He knew that he was tempted to make his work into an idol. Our hearts are often like that big dog that just wants to chase something that will, in the end, leave us not only unsatisfied, but might kill us as well. The chase may be fun for a while, but not when it leaves us flattened. John Calvin said that the human heart is like an idol factory, just cranks out idols one after the other. That's why idolatry is a major theme in the Bible. But the Bible doesn't forbid, you know, just graven images or, or statues. It's not about that. It's a heart issue. It's not about rules about who you can and can't bow down to. It's a heart issue. Ezekiel chapter 14, one of the other prophet, major prophets, in verse 2 to, to 3, uh, we see this. The prophet Ezekiel tells us, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. It's not about the fact that they've just worshiped idols, it's that they've taken them into their hearts. It's a matter of the heart. God knew our hearts would be tempted towards things. That's why the, the first commandment is, is what? You shall have no other gods before me. All the other commandments rest on that, that first and foundational one to put God in his proper place of primary reverence in your life and nothing else. The New Testament continues that theme, right? Jesus told us that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all of your mind. It wasn't about part of your heart. It wasn't about, you know, adding Jesus to the other things that you love. It said all of your heart. That's why when the psalmist prays, Lord, give me an undivided heart. He's talking about loving God with his whole heart. When the gospel of Jesus reveals God to us fully, we see that we now owe everything to him. We can only come to him for life if we die to ourselves first and give him everything that we are because all to him we owe. We're born again. We're raised to this new life in Christ, this new life for Christ, this new life through Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That means 
His whole heart and his whole body and his whole mind, everything is the mind of Christ, even the body of Christ. Even everything is for Christ and through Christ. There can be no room for any other God. Christ becomes our all in all. And so many people think of Christianity, you know, as a a nice thing. Uh, Some studies have shown that that people in America think of Christianity as kind of a benign whateverism. It's it's something good, something to add to your life, maybe like a hobby. You know, I play golf and I go to church. You know, those things are kind of the same. (laughs) Other interests that they have, they kind of add Jesus to that. But that's not how it works. If the gospel is true, then it has to become the sole foundation upon which our lives are built and everything else becomes secondary at at best. God commands us to worship him alone, not because he's an egomaniac, not because he's needy and, and wants our praise for himself. It's because he loves us and wants what's best for us. He knows that our hearts are gonna chase after stuff that will ultimately get us killed, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. He knows that when we abandon ourselves fully to him, then we find life and life to the fullest, abundant life. That's when we flourish in the kind of life that never ends. We may know that in our heads today, right? We know these answers, I think, in our heads if you were raised in church or been around a long time. But my prayer is that as we study Isaiah 41 and 42, that we would believe it in our hearts, that God is all in all and everything else would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Only then can we leave our sin behind. Sin is only a symptom of our idolatry. Once we address the heart issue of idolatry, then the sin issue will be addressed as well. We're going to see three parts in our text for today. First, God calls out false hope. When we talk about these counterfeit gods, we're going to see that he calls out and just kind of asks us to examine whether this hope is real or not in idols. It's false. Next, we're going to see what true hope is. We're going to see what what true hope is. And then finally, he's going to show us the result of hope. What happens once we've put our hope in something that is right and good and true? All right, that was the sermon before the sermon. That was free. This is uh, God now in chapter 41, verse 21. This is God setting up a court of law, inviting us to participate as the jury. He's, He's trying the claims of counterfeit gods in court. Let's look at uh, chapter 21, uh, chapter 41, verses 21 to 23. Go ahead, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. I think God may be a little sarcastic here. I kind of like it. (laughs) Again, God is not domineering. He could have come in, you know, guns blazing and said, stop it. No more idolatry. You guys are fools. Let me show you what's 
right and true and good. In his mercy, he invites us to hear the case and weigh the evidence for ourselves. In his mercy, he grants the idols their day in court. He affords them due process so that we, his children, his image bearers, can make the decision, we can make a verdict about what is right and good and true. It's a call to think clearly about the facts and make a fair judgment. Verse 22 in the NIV says, bring in your idols to tell us what's going to happen. Can idols predict the future? No, but God can. Plenty of pagan people believed that idols could predict the future. You know, there's a, you know, plenty of tarot card shops around Nashville. Plenty of palm readers that still claim to do the same thing. But only God is in charge of history. The next challenge is for the idols to explain the flow of history. What happened before? What's going to happen in the future? How do they uh, interact? Only the Lord directs history. That, that would prove, if, if they could do that, that they were really gods, that they had this omniscient and omnipotent power. But then God makes it real simple for them in verse 23. He's like, look, look, just do, do harm or do good. Just do something. Do anything. If you're real, do something. Just kind of dares them. Because he knows they can't do anything because they are nothing. A real God is one who speaks his word, speaks what's going to happen, and then watches over his word in order to make it happen, to ensure that it will come to pass. A real God orchestrates the events of history towards his good purposes. Any other claims to supremacy must fall short then. After a long silence, there's like a pause after verse 23, okay? The, the counterfeit gods are silent. God says, go ahead, do something. There's in this pause. And then verse 24, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. You know, the important thing to notice is that we become what we worship. If you worship nothing, your life will have no significance. It will be empty. It will be meaningless. Chasing after nothing, you become like nothing. You become despondent. You become empty inside. You think we have a pandemic of COVID? Yes, but maybe even greater is the pandemic of loneliness, the pandemic of emptiness after people who've been chasing after nothing. People who choose fake and meaningless gods become fake and meaningless people. We chase what we love and we resemble what we chase. I'll say that again. We chase what we love and we resemble what we chase. Everyone here, no one, no one is exempt from that. We worship what we love. We become like what we worship. Better pay attention to who our God is then. Now it's God's turn to testify. The idols are silent. They can't do anything, but God can. Look at verse 25 and 26. I stirred up one from the north, and he's come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he's right. <laughs> 
He's right. He called it. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. These empty idols didn't speak anything, but God called it from the beginning that he was going to raise up someone like Cyrus of Persia to come in and kick the Babylonians out and send God's people back home to Canaan. God called it from the very beginning. Who said that it would happen? God did. So now he calls for a verdict. No one else can do what God has done. No one else has done what God has done. All the other contenders are exposed as pretenders here, clearly. Look at verse 29, how it sums up the argument. Behold, the idols are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. You know, people believed that their statues, that their carved images were representative of a real deity. But Isaiah's saying here, look, your images are nothing because there's nothing behind it. They stand for a lie. They, they're a delusion. They're completely empty. So, you know, back in verse 24, God said to the idols, behold, you are nothing. Your works are less than nothing. Here in verse 29, he says, behold, the idols are all a delusion. And now he gives us a third behold here. In chapter one of verse 42, you know that chapters and verses aren't inspired, right? They were put there by some human editors many, 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 many years after they were written. But it's supposed to flow together here as one text. In verse one of chapter 42, he calls our attention to something that we actually can put our hope in. He shows us true hope. Point number two, he shows us the true hope that we will never be disappointed in. Having passed a guilty verdict against the counterfeit gods, we're now given the chance to put our trust in the Lord and what he's gonna do through his servant. Look at verses one to four. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Again, these are surprising strategies, aren't they? A bruised reed he will not break. Anybody here feel like a bruised reed today? Don't raise your hand, but and you might feel like a bruised reed. A faintly burning wick. Anybody feel like that today? A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Not by raising his voice, but he's going to bring justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. All the Gentile pagan nations wait for his good law. Who are we talking about here? the servant of God. Back in chapter 41, we saw that Israel was called God's servant, but then he called him a worm and how they were a slave and pretty pathetic. This is not that. Earlier in Isaiah, he referred to King David as God's servant. He referred to King Eliakim as God's servant. But something's different here. The whole tone of this servant changes. This is a special servant. He never names who this servant is, but it's clear that he's vastly superior to all the other servants. This is the first of four servant songs that we're going to see in Isaiah 
42 to 53, these beautiful songs about God's servant, the special servant. Clearly, he is not an idol. Clearly, he has the power to bring forth justice to the nations. That word justice shows up three times in those last four verses. What is justice? You lawyers out there, you know, justice is about getting things right, getting a legal decision right. But this is more than that. This is more than some kind of judicial fairness. The, the Hebrew word that's used for justice here is mishpat. And it's, it's often translated as judgment in the, the Old Testament. But sometimes it's, it's translated as plan. Isn't that interesting? It's the same word that's used to describe the plan for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. You know that? In Exodus chapter 26, verse 30, check this out. When you shall, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. You may say, where is justice in that? How could, how could the, something be translated as justice in there? It's right here. According to the plan. The Hebrew word for that phrase is mishpat too. Ko mishpat too. According to the plan. According to God's good judgment. According to his design. According to his intentions. That's the word that's used for justice here. It means according to how it should be according to the right way. It's about how God wants things to be according to his good and perfect plan. So when we talk about biblical justice, we're talking about God's plan being enacted. We're talking about making earth more like heaven and less like hell. Kingdom coming and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we, we bought Jude's first big boy bike when, I don't know, he's probably six or seven maybe. And uh, I made the rookie mistake. All you parents are going to laugh at me, but uh, I, I made the rookie mistake of we, we bought it in a box, unassembled. I thought, you know, I'm pretty handy. This will be fun. I always liked Legos as a kid. This will be fun. I'll, I'll get the instruction book out and get some wrenches and it'll be great. You know, maybe 30 minutes and I'll, I'll knock it out and it'll be this great, beautiful bike. About three hours into the build, I started to Google if there was a service that I could hire someone to put this bike together because it wasn't going to get done. And more importantly, this bike had to function properly. Otherwise, my son, whom I love, would be on his face on the pavement. If those wheels come off at the wrong time, it's going to be bad. It's important that it be done right according to to plan. When we talk about God's justice, we're talking about it, things being put together in the proper and right way that lead to flourishing and thriving. God had a good plan for the tabernacle and he has a good plan for this world. We know that we live in a broken world. It's not hard to see that. You can look around, read the newspaper. We know that there's all kinds of injustice happening all around us, things that don't happen according to God's plan. We had a Barefoot Republic camp here uh, last week, and uh, one of our members drove kids back and forth from the projects uh, to camp here. And uh, one day he, he came up to me and he, he had a knife about this big. 
I said, where'd you get that? And he said, one of the kids on the, the bus had it today. You know, we live in a broken world full of injustice, broken marriages, broken families, ecological disasters. We saw the flooding last night, racial strife, pandemics, hello, systemic poverty and crime, addiction that runs rampant. These are problems, yes, that we should work to alleviate and, and try through every means necessary to eradicate, yes. But at the same time, ultimately, all these problems are the result of sin. Sin has made a wreck of God's good plan. These injustices defy God's good plan. They go against the mishpat of God. And we know that our ancient enemy, sin, cannot ultimately be defeated by any kind of human ingenuity or political will or work ethic. Ultimately, the solution to these problems is going to have to come from beyond us. We need a savior. Which is why the centerpiece of God's plan to make things right is to send his servant. A servant whom will be filled with the spirit of God himself. A, a servant who will come in unbelievable power, yet at his core is gentle and lowly. A servant who comes to people who are burned out, to people who are exhausted, to people who can't go on like a bunch of bruised reeds or smoldering candles. And instead of finishing them off and snapping them in two, he heals them. He gently restores them. We're talking about the servant who is none other than Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God, who would perfectly fulfill God's mishpat justice through his life, death, and resurrection and return. He's the only one capable of making things right because he is God in the flesh. He is the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and makes death work backwards. He makes everything sad come untrue. In verses five to nine, God speaks to his servant. And basically what he says is, look, I'm betting everything on Jesus. He's the, the centerpiece of my plan. So my reputation as God is on the line here. If he can't do what he says I, he can do, then I'm no better than an idol either. Look at verses five through nine. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. This is what the servant does. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He's gonna do this amazing work through his servant, a new thing that's gonna transform everything. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changes everything, and so will his second coming. 
Everything in God's plan hinges on the work of his servant. That leads us to the final section. What happens when we put our trust in the servant, in the new thing that God's doing? When we put our trust in the new work of God, we sing to him a new song. That's the result of that kind of hope. Look at verses 10 to 12. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its, its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. What happens when God shows us the gospel and we put our trust in it is we bring forth this beautiful song of praise. The proper response to God making things right through Jesus is global worldwide praise. I know some of you don't always enjoy when Aaron leads a new song. I'd never heard that chorus to one of those songs we sang today, right? But it was, it's good to learn new songs. Why is it good to learn new songs? Why not just sing the hits? Why not just sing the classics? David Mathis says, new songs of praise are appropriate for new rescues and fresh manifestations of grace. That means when we're blown away by something new, amazed by some work of God that he's done in our lives, we should respond with a fresh response. Mathis continues, as long as God keeps showing us his power, as long as he keeps wowing us with his works, it is fitting that we not just sing old songs inspired by his past grace, but also that we sing new songs about his ever-streaming, never-ceasing grace. God's giving the world an open invitation here to marvel at the work of his servant, then to join together in a song of praise to him. You know, I'm too young for this, but in the 80s, there were some of these global songs for famine relief in Africa. I don't know if you remember Band Aid. Band Aid was a group of uh, Irish and British singers, you know, uh, Bono, David Bowie, Phil Collins, Culture Club. They, they had a song called, Do, you know it, Do They Know It's Christmas? Remember that? And then a few years later, you had Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie that did We Are the World for the same cause. The new song that Isaiah mentions here is sort of like that. It's supposed to be a global anthem of praise, but it's like that times a billion. <laughs> this is a, a song from the world that emanates from every nation, tribe, and tongue as they experience the goodness and the glory of God in transforming ways as revealed in Jesus. And we get to start rehearsing that song right now. That's what worship is, join the choir, literally join the choir, or figuratively join the choir. Let's close with verses 16 to 17. And I will lead the blind in a way that they don't even know, in paths they have not known. I will guide them, I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Counterfeit gods, these are the choices. Put your trust in real hope as revealed through God's servant or go back to your idols. 
The outcome is that those who put their trust in the Lord and, and, and in his servant, they end up on the, the platform with all their brothers and sisters in Christ, joining in the greatest epic song of all time at the top of their lungs in joy and in praise and gratitude, or go back to walking in darkness and in shame. I pray that we'll all learn to reject the, the counterfeit gods that money, sex, power, nothing else can provide like God can. Even good things like jobs and family cannot be God. Then we can embrace the only source of hope, the gentle and lowly servant of God who brings justice and makes things right. Finally, we will sing the song of the redeemed in praise to the Lord of all. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have shown us that our false gods lead to nothing but, but terrible consequences, that they lead to nothing good, that they lead to us getting hurt, that they lead to us getting flattened like a dog chasing a car. Lord, I pray that you would inspire our hearts today to love you with an undivided heart. Help us to understand that when we put our whole trust in you, when we die to ourselves, that we actually find life, we actually find healing, we actually flourish by giving ourselves away, that in you alone is true hope found. God, we confess that our hearts are idol factories, that they, they keep cranking out idols one after the other. Help us to consciously fight against our own fallen flesh and our own fallen hearts as we recommit our full heart to you and everything else will flow from that. God, the sin that we so easily are entangled by will fall away. The chains that so easily enslave us will fall away as we learn to give you our whole heart, our mind, our body, our strength, our soul, that we bet everything on you, God. We will not be put to shame but you will lead us in places that we didn't even know existed. You will take us gently by the hand. God, I know there are people here today who feel like a bruised reed. They feel like a, a candle about to go out, and yet you come gently to us, and you don't put more demands on us. You simply call us to take your yoke upon us because it's easy and it's light, and that you give rest to those who are weary, that for those who wait upon your name, they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint, that they will be raised up on wings like eagles. Lord, I pray that as we come to this table today, you will remind us of your goodness and help us to believe it in our hearts, what we know to be true in our heads. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.